Welcome to Parallel, a tech podcast with accessibility sprinkles. I'm Shelley Brisbane, your host. This is episode 64. My guest today is Lawrence Miller. He identifies as a person with disabilities and a gay cyborg. He's also the lead designer of customer support of IT workflows at a cybersecurity company. That's not really what we're going to talk about, though. On today's show, we're going to talk about what it means that he's a cyborg, what his life's journey has been like to get to that situation in life, uh, and also some of the technology behind what he does. And uh, it's going to be a little unusual in that this is very much going to be uh, Lawrence's personal story, and I want to give him an opportunity to sort of introduce himself and his journey to you. And then we're going to want to talk about some of the aspects of his life that uh, I hope are interesting to, to you out there, the listeners. So, Lawrence, first of all, welcome to Parallel. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. And you and I have, have talked before uh, some about uh, your life. I've looked at your your website where you describe some of the uh, technology that you not only use but have made a part of your body. But uh, why don't you why don't you sort of give us the the story of of, of who you are and, and how you've gotten to be a cyborg? Okay. So first of all, the cyborg is not um, a standard jargon everyone understands. So I'll just let everyone know my definition of a cyborg means that I augment my body with technology to change the structure and function of my body. Um, and, and, and when I say body, I also mean brain. And, um, and, and when I say brain, I also mean mind. So it's, it's, the, it's the entire person. I use technology to fundamentally change who and what I am. Some of those changes are temporary um, and some are a little more permanent. I have incorporated technology into and onto my body. Um, basically, I'm using technology to explore novel bodily forms, to uh, wield and exercise my bodily autonomy, and question the concept of, um, of normalcy and just experience new and interesting ways of being. And this is an idea that um, I didn't come up with myself. I was introduced to it by a cyborg. Um, I saw a TED talk by a cyborg called Neil Harbison, and he explains in his talk that um, he has a, a, a rare form of colorblindness. He only sees in grayscale. And to overcome obstacles specific to that disability, he um, collaborated with a peer to invent an artificial sense organ that would let him experience color by by translating frequencies of color into frequencies of sound. So he still can't see color, but he can hear color. And his brain has adapted to the way that technology works to understand it intuitively. And um, at the end of his talk, he invites everyone listening just to consider how we might change our bodies if we endeavor to create applications not only for computers, but for people and flesh. Um, so I was just really taken in by him. First of all, amazed by <laughs> his style. <laughs> He's so stylish in the way that he dresses now that he acts, has access to color. Um, and I, I really admired his, um, his way of kind of, um, seizing some responsibility, some control over his situation, choosing to, do new and weird things to be willing to do weird things to accommodate his needs. I think that that empowers him and, and inspires his creativity. It, it offers him some really important 
um, creative opportunities and constraints. And he's, he's primarily an artist. So it's really useful for him and his art to be able to understand um, color in a new way and also to understand sound in a completely different way. So that, that just inspired me to, to want to become a cyborg. Um, I was a bit early coming into myself in my, in my very young adulthood, um, as, as well as early as, as coming out to myself, I had hardly begun to understand how to properly, um, accommodate and, and advocate for my needs, um, to be able to, to request from others with the power, you know, to meet my needs, to, to do that. Um, I like this idea of, of, being, being allowed to experience other kinds of bodies other than my own, to get to choose something about my body and then choose to celebrate that choice about my body. It sounded like freedom, like choice and control. And I had no idea how I could possibly use technology to address my specific disabilities, but the, the idea that I'm free to try to experiment really appealed to me. There are two aspects of this which are really interesting. First is the aspect of creating a situation where your disabilities are uh, muted or they aren't really a factor. You've compensated for them. I don't know what, what wording you'd, you'd prefer. And then there's the aspect of you, by, by virtue of the fact that you have augmented your body, you look physically different than you did before and that you might appear unusual in the company of others. And so you, you've both done this thing that helps you to deal with your disability, uh, but you've also essentially drawn attention to yourself, which is something that I know people with disabilities sometimes don't want to do. So I, I guess I wonder how you thought about that before you did it, and then how, now that it's incorporated into your body, and we'll talk a little bit later about what you've done, how you sort of process that for yourself. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that I have um, directly addressed uh, th the nature of my disability at all. Um, I think that that could be possible in the future. My, my disability is, um, um, I, I guess, neurological or psychological. I'm not sure exactly which is the case, but um, I, don't have, I don't have computer stuff in my brain to make my brain work differently. Uh, prior to exposure to Neil Harbison, I, I, I was already uh, accustomed to making changes to my lifestyle in, in direct response to my, to my disability. Like I, I really struggle with, um, making and keeping commitments and a paper calendar wouldn't do me any good because I'd lose it. And I can't write legibly fast enough to record important information before it's past the, the conversation, social norm. Everyone else is moving so much faster than me. And it's like, I need to be able to write this down fast. So I use a calendar app on my phone. I'm really good at not losing my phone. And that data, you know, is synced to the cloud. I can access it anywhere. I never lose it. So I was already used to a f figuring out how to accommodate my needs. But what I hadn't figured out was how to give myself permission to explore even further. And I hadn't even considered how changes to my body might be involved in um, response to my disability. And is... is is cyborgism something that uh, there are other people, and I, I learned this from talking with you earlier, there are others who are, there's a community of people who are cyborgs or who want to become cyborgs. And I, I'm wondering if many of those people are trying to address a response to a disability or if it's 
a wider uh, range of things that people want to accomplish for themselves. There certainly are cyborgs who are directly addressing challenges related to disability by becoming cyborgs or by incorporating technology into the body. And there also are there are also a lot of people who are doing this purely as an intellectual curiosity or who um, came into it through a technical discipline that's in their profession. Um, so there's people coming at it from from all different angles. So so tell me a little bit about what your your cyborgism has entailed. I believe you've done it in different steps and you still have things you, you want to do. So so what have you what, what was the first thing that you did toward becoming a cyborg for yourself? You know, I think most people exposed to pop culture entertainment will probably already have an idea of what a cyborg is if they haven't heard of it through actual cyborgs. Like I, I, before I knew that real cyborgs exist, I only understood cyborgs as a fantasy concept. Like I'm, my whole family is really into Star Trek. Like I've been watching Star Trek since I was born. So that's how I, (laughs) I understood cyborgs through like the Borg, you know, they're they're the bad guys (laughs) in in all those series. Um, But um, so finding out that you know people are are using technology to change the way that their bodies work was really interesting to me. And what I found the most interesting actually is that um, you don't need to be uh, an engineer and you don't need to look like a robot to be a cyborg. Actually, most of the things that I have explored through my 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 cyborgism are very low tech. Um, When I was first getting into this, the first augmentation that I, that I made to my body, um, it doesn't even use electricity. And that was actually an intentional requirement, a, a, a constraint that I wanted to place on myself because I wanted to do something maybe just to try, maybe not do it forever. That would be really, really safe and really cheap. And the fastest shortcut I could think to accomplish that would be to just throw electronics completely out the window, which um, I think it's a miracle I managed to even think of it because (laughs) going to school for computer science and being obsessed with hobby robotics and stuff, uh, I mean, obviously I do want to do the electronics, but so the first thing that I did, um, I started wearing a rear view mirror that attaches to my eyeglasses. So it's, it stays in my periphery at all times. It allows me to see forward and backward directions simultaneously, just as naturally as my unmodified sight. And I had started doing this hoping that because my brain already knows how to see and my brain already understands what mirrors are and how they work, my brain should probably just figure out what to do with this extra information and then hopefully find ways to make use of that. And if I can incorporate that into my my understanding of reality and just my, my daily natural experience, then that will have effectively changed the way that my body and mind are working. And if that's possible to do, then I, then I felt that I would be more confident in, in pursuing other projects as well. I have a few other, um, low tech mods. This one is, is really, really simple. And I, I, I want to include this one because I think some people might not realize how, how small of a change you can make to your body to really affect you, to change the way that your lifestyle is and, and change the way your body works. I started carrying earplugs with me absolutely everywhere that I think there might be noise that I don't want to listen to. 
I'm just a bit sensitive to noise and I want control over my ear function. I can't turn down the sound of the things I can't control, but I can turn the sound down on my own ears. I can choose to do that, to change the way that my ears work. And on the bit more experimental side, I also invented a vision system to allow a person to change the distance between their eyes as well as the height of their eyes so that you can experience how it feels to be gigantic or teeny tiny or have a skull that's four feet wide. So, um, and so it's the, it's the arbitrarity and the rejection of normalcy that was most interesting to me when I was first getting acquainted. And see, that's interesting. And that goes back to what we were talking about a little bit before, where, where my perception is that you are, whether you wish to or not, and maybe you do wish to, you're drawing attention to yourself. Because if you have appliances on your body or if you're engaging with them in a way that's different than the people around you, you're, you're going to get some attention and you're going to get it all the time and you're probably going to be ready for it. And I guess I wonder how soon after you started doing this, did that become something that you had to factor into the way you moved around in the world? Yeah, pretty much immediately. Um, when I started using the rearview mirror, it was late in 2015. So the Google Glass was still in the cultural national conversation. And I got asked by so many strangers on the street, oh, is that Google Glass? Sure. No, it's just a five gram <laughs> piece of regular glass. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I was... I was more worried about what other people thought of me than I think other people were concerned about what they thought of me. I was really sensitive and, and wanting to um, avoid embarrassment for myself. I was a little shy to start. Um, there were many, many places where, uh, because my mirror pivots on an axis, I'm able to um, turn it around completely and, and take it out of my sight. And it also makes it visible to people who are facing me making eye contact to me, they can see the mirror side, the reflective side of it when I tuck it away. There were many places I would go where I would tuck it away out of fear that I might be a little too weird looking and I might set off alarms. But um, I allowed myself to be brave enough to try wearing it in those places anyway to see what would happen. And I was relieved to find out that none of it mattered. You can be weird in public and most people are too polite to talk to you <laughs> about it. But uh, some people are. Some people do are really curious and want to ask me questions. Um, unfortunately, the place where I get asked the most questions in public is at, at checkout lines. Mm -hmm. And I love to tell people my story and explain that I'm a cyborg. And I also know that the people behind me in line probably aren't as interested as the person behind the <laughs> register. Um, yeah. And I have been meaning for some time to just record a short video that gives a little, a little brief on the question and then link it to a QR code or something, like something I can print out on a card and just hand to people, oh, hey, what's that on your face? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Here's this card. <laughs> you can go check it out later. But I uh, haven't gotten around to it. This episode of Parallel is brought to you by The Dragon's Brood Cycle, an epic fantasy series written by Josh DeLioncourt. The Dragon's Brood Cycle is an epic fantasy series that blends legend, history, and a dose of realism. 
Emily Haven, a high school hockey prodigy, has two secrets. Her rapidly deteriorating home life and the apparently supernatural power that makes her a star on the ice. After being torn from 21st century Minneapolis and stranded in a world of strange creatures and dark sorcery, Emily finds herself caught between opposing forces in a war she does not understand. The story grapples with issues that face our modern world within a fantasy context, including racism, identity, gender roles, and more. Josh DeLioncourt is a blind indie author who was raised on sci-fi and fantasy. As an avid audiobook listener, Josh's novels are written with particular attention to how they will sound when narrated. The audiobook editions are narrated by Ray Kaplan, who voiced Windy the Lungs in the Emmy Award-winning series The Organ Wise Guys. So I have read The Dragon's Brood Cycle. In fact, uh, I uh, know Josh, and I got the opportunity to read it before it was even published. And I read a short story that sort of starts the cycles out, and I remember thinking, oh, I want so much more of this because I knew there were novels coming. I knew there were more books. The characters that Josh creates are so vivid and the story is so compelling. You, you kind of feel like you're, you're like Emily, lost in a world that you don't understand, but then you want to know more and you want to meet all these characters that Josh creates. You're going to want more once you start reading The Dragon's Brood. I read a lot of audiobooks and I absolutely recommend it as a way to consume both fiction and nonfiction. But the great thing about a well-read audiobook that has been written uh, for years is that it is especially uh, vivid and especially uh, entertaining and just it, it takes you into a world and you feel even more like you're not sure what's coming next, or at least I do when I'm reading an audiobook. So I recommend anybody who's a fan of fantasy, if you like Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or any of the sort of f- fantastical quest-related kind of novels or series out there, you're really going to enjoy this. Uh, and also, if you're somebody who just enjoys a really good book uh, read aloud to you, you should check out The Dragon's Brew because it's great. The Dragon's Brew Cycle received five-star ratings and was a recommended read on the Grammar Girl podcast. To learn more, hear samples, and begin your journey with Emily Haven and her friends, search The Dragon's Brood on Audible and iTunes, or visit dragonsbrood.net and click on audiobooks. The Dragon's Brood Cycle is also available in ebook and paperback. Once again, search The Dragon's Brood on Audible and iTunes, or visit dragonsbrood.net and click on audiobooks. Our thanks to Dragon's Brood for their support of this show and Relay FM. And I would guess that as you discovered that, number one, people weren't paying as much attention to you as you thought they were or would, or, and number two, you came up with a sort of a way to explain your story in the way that you wanted to, I would, would imagine or I would hope that that would increase your own self-confidence, not only in terms of your cyborgism, but just in terms of the way you move around in the world. Yeah, definitely. Um, it increased my confidence a lot. And I, I had to learn through experience where it's okay to be weird and, and how weird I can be without causing a problem. I think some people do think that my my equipment is accessibility equipment. And they're too shy to ask about it because I do often get asked, sorry, if this is a rude question or I hope you don't mind my asking or is it okay to ask you about what's that thing on your face? And so I have to believe that there are many more people who are curious about my appearance who don't ask. 
And I'd love for more people to know about what I'm doing. And that's why I have never turned down a speaking invitation to date. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, let's talk about those the specific uh, things you've done a little bit in terms of like what, what the benefits are and the, the, the mirror. Uh, the one thing that occurred to me right away is that it, it must change the way you see, you must have trained, your brain must become trained by having that on your face to see in a different way. You must have different expectations of your own vision and, and you get different things from it. Yeah, is that true? That's absolutely true. And when I was early in that project, um, before I committed to wearing it all the time, um, I was playing games with myself to intentionally train my brain and get my brain used to it, accustomed to it, understanding how to know it. Um, I would tack up a piece of newsprint on the wall and then stand facing away from it and try to read the newspaper. Um, I had my friends help me play games like I Spy. Um, I had friends um, uh, hold up flashcards, just playing cards, and I would have to locate where they're holding it. If you don't understand how um, naval semaphore works, the way that people hold flags at different positions to communicate, mm -hmm. I would have my friends do that with playing cards and I would have to snipe out the card, call out the name of the card just in order to get enough practice to get my brain accustomed. And once this all started to feel natural, I have, have not played all those games quite so often the daily experience is enough to keep up with the things that matter to me. The two things that, and th that, that matter the most, and these are like skills that I don't think I'll ever lose because I am using them constantly, even when not playing training games, object tracking and situational awareness in the same way that sighted people don't need to think about how to move their eyeballs to follow a moving object. I no longer have to think about how to move my head and neck to track an object behind me because I don't have muscular control over the mirror. If I need to adjust the position of the mirror, I have to do it with my fingers to change its position. So for me, object tracking behind me means moving my head. I don't, I don't no longer have to think about how to do that. It's completely intuitive now. Situational awareness can vary a bit depending on lighting conditions, but generally speaking, the more light there is, the better, and the more I'm aware of, even without consciously turning my attention. I notice when there's someone walking behind me a lot sooner. I sometimes notice when my friends come into a room. Often, uh, when I was doing this, I was in university, and so I'd be sitting in class, and a friend of mine would walk in the door, and just the littlest sound of someone coming in the door would activate my object tracking, and I would locate the friend, see their face, instantly recognize them and say, hello, Greg, or whoever. And uh, I stopped doing that because some of them thought it was too spooky. <laughs> 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 the um, reading backwards skill is one that fades if I'm not actively practicing it. And as a point of interest, the thing that I think is most interesting about my, my daily experience of reality is definitely the optical illusions because I get a lot of um, unanticipated image overlay that can, um, through statistical inevitability, create some really interesting visual effects. And definitely by far the one I experience the most frequently and my most favorite is the hallway illusion. If I'm in an aisle in a store or walking down a skinny corridor, the 
perspective lines of, of, of geometry in the scene will often overlay front and behind and really match up and create just a really delicious illusion. Hmm. I have tried to use photography to approximate that. Um, but ultimately, if you want to know what this illusion is like, I think you've got to put on a mirror yourself to find out, or you've got to wait on me to remember to make the time to complete the VR system I was designing to <laughs> approximate it. What about when you're using computer screens or do you drive a car? I mean, do you use it in those situations? Yeah. And the way that I have my mirror adjusted for when I'm in the car is actually a little different than when I'm walking around. When I'm walking around, um, the image I want to see is pretty much directly behind me or maybe just off by a few degrees. Because if I am walking on a sidewalk and there's someone um, behind me, I don't want them occupying my peripheral vision absolutely right. all the time. So I do keep it a few degrees askew and it just takes a little tiny turn of the head to center it. When I'm in the car, it's deflected by a larger angle. And I actually, I'm not sure if it's definitely legal, but I do use it as a, as a wing mirror while I'm driving. I do also use the, the legally required wing <laughs> mirror, but I use my mirror too. But nobody's pulled you over and said, what's that thing? Somebody's <laughs> giving you a hassle about that. No, no, I haven't gotten any hassle for that. Well, let's talk about some of your, your other uh, modifications, because that, I guess, is the most visible one to, mm -hmm. to people. But, but you've done some things since then, too. Yeah. So first, I have a confession. The, um, the variable vision system, when I say I invented that, what I really mean is I drew it. I drew pictures of it. Um, the day that I learned that conceptual art is a serious academic art practice, my life improved because <laughs> I'm a really creative person. I'm very whimsical and weird. I'm always brimming with too many ideas. I can't possibly make all of them real in my limited mortal time, but it feels so good to give form no matter how much or how little to those ideas. And conceptual art is a really great way to give a, a brief form to something, just to document, just to make sure that that idea sticks around. And the variable vision system is, is one of those whose form is, for the moment, quite small. And this variable vision system, okay, I, I have a second confession, which is that as an engineer, I feel obligated to admit it does depend on some naive assumptions about how brains and eyeballs and periscopes actually work due to uh, periscopes not being magic tubes that transport images perfectly across space and time, it might not even work at all the way I've imagined it. But it's the imagination that I think matters the most. It's a really important early step in any new project. I don't let the weird or the whimsy of an idea stop me from thinking or trying. <laughs> totally cool with putting a, a sketchy idea onto paper. And that's, that's definitely one of them. And do you feel like you're the person that's eventually going to have to implement it? Or do you envision a situation in which you conceive of something mm -hmm. and give it to somebody else and say, make that for me? I hope not to have to make it because as fun as it is, I mean, I could do a dollar store version in an afternoon, but I'm pleased to share my ideas freely with people. And maybe someone who knows more about optics, you know, and... And uh, maybe someone who's like a, um, a mascot designer or a cosplay expert costume crafter would do better than, than what I've sketched. Maybe they'd take that sketch and do something way better than what I would make. So I'm, I'm pleased if someone else will take my work that I've given away freely and do something better with it. 
And they might even have different goals for what they want to accomplish because you've drawn something that presumably looks cool, looks the way you want it to look, but also would, if it were in, if it were real, accomplish a specific task or or give you a specific kind of perception that you want. But somebody else might take it and go, oh, what if we did it this other way so we yeah. could do something different? Yeah, definitely. So your visual modification, I guess, is is your big... It was kind of your breakthrough into the cyborg world, but but talk about talk about some of the other things you've done and how far along you are in that journey because you're continuing to oh, yeah. conceptualize things but add things to yep. your experience. I I hope it never ends. There's always going to be a new project <laughs> just around the corner. Sure. Um, after I was well convinced that the underlying principles of the vision modification were sound, I felt convinced that, yes, I can incorporate technology into my body in a meaningful way, in a way that changes the way that my brain works. Then I permitted myself to get more into the technological and using electronics and stuff. So I, th I think the simplest augmentation that I have is, uh, it was very low effort on, on my part, low effort, high cost. Um, I purchased an implanted NFC wireless transceiver uh, it lets me store data inside my body and I can I can write data into my body and copy data out of my body. It's a really small amount of data. And this is a device that most people are using, uh, most people who have it anyway, are using it as a kind of reprogrammable biometric credential. So to open a safe or unlock a car or a front door. Um, it's the same technology that's in all these um, wireless ID badges that you have. Maybe mm -hmm. you have one for work or your driver's license or your bus pass. Same technology as that. And I appreciate that people use it for that. And I think it's really great and cool that people use it for that. But I'm also a huge gearhead. I'm a gear freak. I have a closet full of way too much camping gear that I'm only in the middle of sorting through again. I'm not, I'm not satisfied with, a, you know, an implanted key unless it'll open absolutely everything that I want it to and nothing that I don't. And I couldn't find a way to make that work in my budget. So I don't use it as a, as a credential at all. I use my transceiver as a portable art gallery because I did not go to school for art. I'm not a professional artist. I, I don't have a pedigree. I don't have connections. And I don't expect for any of my work to be seen in a gallery anytime soon. But I like to honor my work. I like to appreciate that side of myself. And I like for other people to be able to see my work. So I, I carry around my own gallery that's that's just my work inside of my inside my my left hand. So how do you get data in and out and how do you display it for people? Yeah, I've um, so this thing uh, responds to a number of different protocols. And at the moment, it's just doing a URL response when it gets um, a valid read from a reader. It's a, the, the chip is instructed to respond with a URL pattern that will open in a web browser on your, uh, on your smartphone so that you can be taken to my, my online art gallery. And so in a sense, it, it's not just inside my body. It's, it's not absolutely integral to my essence. It is just on the internet. It's just a URL that links to my, my site. But the fact that it's possible for me to handshake away access to my art gallery just makes me feel really cool. <laughs> you, you don't have to worry about whether somebody's got a QR capable reader of any kind. They're just like, 
So and, and then so so when you want to change, you're not changing the data that's actually in this implanted device. You're changing whatever you change on the website to update your art. So at the moment, I'm not changing it all the time. It's been stable for a while. It's the same URL that I've been using, and with NFC enabled devices. I have, I have it set it up on purpose so that absolutely anyone can read the data that's on it. What can't be done by anyone is change the data that's on it. That's only for mm-hmm. me. When I first got the implant, I was changing it um, very frequently. I told all my friends, did a little, bit, a little bit of promo, bit of press in my social network to tell everybody, hey, for the next month, every day that you see me on campus at our school, ask if you want to scan my implant and you can get my secret thingy of the day. And so for every school day, I had a different program on the chip. And some days it it was just like my art gallery now, internet URLs that you could get through other means, but you'd only know to get it if you'd you'd scanned me in person. On other days, um, scanning my implant would bring a poem onto your screen and you could read a, a poem. Sometimes it would um, instruct your phone to open your maps application and start pedestrian navigating to a location that I'd picked out. And whoops, surprise, now you're on a little little Easter egg hunt. <laughs> so I did, I did some art installations around campus um, and just have you know the map application take you to the GPS coordinate so you can see what I did there. Most of the art that I was trying to communicate was um, specifically about disability and our relationships between disability and art. I really felt that there was a lacking of humanities in our school and the humanities that were there weren't being taken seriously enough. Most people, most of my peers understood their arts and humanities courses as frivolous, box ticking, busy work. And I wanted to challenge that idea very loudly because some of the most interesting ideas that I've um, come to understand through computer science are really originating from arts and humanities. And I don't think enough people scratch the surface long enough to understand how much interesting information there is there to perceive. And what was the feedback you got both from your method of presentation and from the art that you were making available to people? To my dismay, not very many people were interested in participating but I was committed to it. I kept doing it anyway. There were, there were some days that no yeah. one remembered to scan me, but I kept myself available to it to let anyone who was interested to see what I, what I had done. And um, the, the few friends who I already knew who, who were excited about it, they, they made the effort to, to be good friends and, and, and to indulge my weirdness <laughs> and, and, and come and seek me out. Well, and, and what do you want to do in the future, you you say you hope that you'll yeah. be continuing to evolve. And what mm-hmm. are what are your what are your hopes and dreams for this stuff? So I've got a specific target right now. Something that I have been working on for many years. Um, there was this really cool navigational aid uh, made by a company called SenseBridge. They called it the North Paw, and it's an artificial sense organ that will allow you to intuit your spatial orientation relative to Earth's magnetic field expressed through haptic pulses, pager motors, vibrators. And it looked so cool, and it was open source. You could just build your own from parts, but um, 
it was a bit expensive. They oh, they offered it pre-assembled, and I, I definitely couldn't afford that. And even just buying the parts, it, it's it seemed a little expensive. I wanted to try to make my own out of things I already had or could borrow, and um, I got so far down the rabbit hole of trying to make my own that I didn't notice when my situation changed and I actually could have afforded to just buy it. And by the time I noticed, um, they unfortunately shut their doors and no longer sell that product. Darn. Oh no. But, uh, my prototype is really far along. It works on the workbench. It's completely functional, but it is not yet wearable. I've got to take everything off of my breadboard and get it all, um, packaged up into an enclosure, figure out waterproofing and battery charging. And then I, I, I hope to, become an improved navigator. Cause if the sun isn't shining, I'm not finding. So that wouldn't be an, an implanted item. It's something would be something that you would wear or how, how would you affix it to yourself? Yeah. The, they intend for the North paw to strap around your ankle, which I'm aware will look like house arrest. And, and so <laughs> right. um, the, the, the looking weird thing I've got to consider, you know, where is it cool to look weird? And I think the solution to that is to put a big smiley face sticker on the enclosure. To, to show people it's okay to look at this, you know, Hey, this isn't a, this isn't a taboo. You're allowed to look here. Interesting. And then you have a whole another series of questions about what's it for? Because I, I imagine that that's, it, it's not only just interest. It's not only you know, positive interest and, in, you know, Hey, I'm not, I'm not going to judge you or call you weird or whatever, but how much you, you have to figure out how much detail they want. And at what point they're just like, oh, wow, that's a little more than I bargained for. Yeah. (laughs) I, wow, I have such a tendency to info dump, which is why I tend to do well in this kind of setting. And I have learned that uh, most people who ask possibly regret it. (laughs) 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 So I have, I have learned to give people the elevator pitch strictly under a minute, under 45 seconds, whatever. A really short, oh, I'm a cyborg, which means I modify or I, uh, I augment my body with technology to change the structure and function of my body. And if you'd like to know more with that, would you like five minutes more, half an hour more or an hour more? And I, I right. let people be in control of um, how much info is to be dumped. That's, that's, a, that's a good way to organize, organize your thoughts and their expectations, I suppose. Yeah. And that's really the big thing with communicating my presentation out by just existing. Managing other people's expectations is, is really important. What would you want people who want to understand more about what a cyborg is and what other potential ways one might become a cyborg? What would you want people to, to know who are maybe curious beyond what you've specifically done? I definitely want people to know that you don't need tons of technology to be a cyborg. You just need to give yourself permission to explore new body forms. And you need a little creativity. You might need a little help. You might have to occasionally talk to someone who has expertise in, in something that, that you don't know about. But this isn't just about electronics and it's not just about disability. It's about lots of things. And you can become a cyborg in whatever way you want to become one. And there is something that I really want people to know and a story that I want to share with you on your show, because the way that I have been telling my story for the past few years I experienced something that made me realize that I need to make a change about how 
I tell my story to others. When I started trying to become a cyborg in 2015, I, w- I was really high on that freedom aspect. I felt very liberated. And I kind of thought that becoming a cyborg would make me stop feeling ashamed of my body, to stop feeling inferior and weak and to be pitied. And for the longest time, the story that I thought I wanted to tell and the story that I have been telling to audiences is that augmenting my body with technology has liberated me from shame about my body and my disability because I confronted a world that was not built with me and folks like us in mind. And I changed my environment and myself in whatever way I see fit to accomplish my goals. I've taken responsibility for my needs and said, you know, screw normality. I'm, I'm not going to let anyone or anything, any expectation, any judgment stand in between me and a body that's more interesting to me, more useful to me, more comfortable for me, not what's useful to society, not what's expected of me by society, just whatever I want. My body is mine and no one else's. I'm in control. The way that I look, the way that I choose to look, it's a speech act. By making my body look different and work different and making no attempt whatsoever to make that look normal, I'm saying to others, look at me. Look at me. Stare if you want. Yes, I am a freak and I don't care how comfortable you are about it. I like the way that I am. I'm here on purpose. I dressed myself today and I chose this. I've been telling that story because I want other people with disabilities to know that this is a possibility for them. This can be reality. You can give yourself permission to change your environment, your lifestyle, how you use your body. You can do whatever is best for you. You can change. You can make your environment change. But the truth is, shame is a very powerful emotion. And it takes more than words and more than time to heal. And it takes more than cyborgism to heal. Ten years after coming out of the closet, I can still occasionally feel shame about being gay. Like, I'm sometimes afraid to talk to men in public because I worry that they'll know that I'm gay and then I'll feel ashamed. It doesn't have to be anything that they do. It's my emotions. I feel ashamed. 13 years since I first learned I'm disabled, I still sometimes struggle to advocate for myself, to, to assert my needs to, to the people who can, who can meet my needs because they might ask uncomfortable questions and then I'll feel ashamed. I thought that coming out of the closet would make me 
feel a lot better. I, I wanted to be able to feel proud of myself. And today I am glad. I'm glad I'm gay. I'm glad I'm disabled. I really like being a cyborg. I have learned to love who I am, but homophobia still exists. It can still hurt me. I'm still vulnerable to it. Ableism still exists. My own internalized homophobia and ableism, as much as I want to be rid of them, they still exist. The effects of trauma are very long-lived and I have a lot of it. And because of the very unusual kind of person that I am, the surprising nature of what I do, I'm frequently being asked to speak about my experience as, as guest lecturer, as a public speaker. At the last major speaking invitation I accepted a few years ago before the pandemic, someone who approached me after the, after the event, I'm usually approached by people after events with, with questions or wanting to share their stories with me. Somebody said something that made me realize that I wasn't being fully honest about my shame and that by excluding discussion of my shame and how I'm healing it, I may be doing some people a disservice. Not being honest about how cyborgism ties into that, I, 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 don't think it's, I don't think it's right of me to leave people with the mistaken impression that becoming a cyborg is the thing that has liberated me from shame. It has been very interesting and encouraging but I think I need to be more clear when I tell my story, like today onward, I want everyone to know the power of technology is limited. Technology alone has not healed my shame. The way that people respond to my story, and in particular, the the one woman who approached me with hers, I, I, I don't know if I have permission to share it, and that's why I'm being a little vague, but... So many people respond to me and, and leave me thinking that they think that I'm an expert on healing shame. And I need people to know that I'm not. I'm not an expert on healing shame. I'm a person still experiencing and healing my shame. And I'm really uncomfortable with the responsibility that people sometimes want me to have to tell them how to, she, to, how, how to heal shame because I'm not qualified to have that responsibility. Counselors are the experts who know how to help you heal shame, not me. And I want to be honest about the fact that it's counseling that has actually done most of the heavy lifting in healing my shame. But to the many who have uh, reached out to, to thank me for sharing my story and who've, who, who have shared their stories with me, I, I, I'm hoping that I can honor your stories that you've shared with me by sharing mine more honestly. I want everyone who hears my story from now on to understand how important counseling is regarding healing shame. It helps so much. And if you want to think of counseling as a form of, air quotes, technology, <laughs> that you want to incorporate into a cyborg practice, go for it, honey, by any means available. Make your body, your mind, your environment work to suit you and your life, however it's best for you. And ignore me. 
I'm not, I'm not the, I'm not a de facto authority on cyborgism and I'm not an authority on, on healing shame, but I'm glad that I have healed some of my shame. And yes, becoming a cyborg did help a little. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I'll just ask you just one question about that. Part of what one gets from counseling is not only having that other person who can provide guidance or ask good questions, but being a listener. And so when those people come to you and tell you their stories or express their gratitude for yours, that's about that, that's about listening. They may not be expecting you to heal their shame so much as they're saying, I'm sharing with you what I have to share for my own reasons, for my own benefit, to my own benefit, just in the way that you would share with a counselor or you would share with an audience because yeah. telling your story can make it better. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and I felt that too. And I'm so grateful to everyone who has shared their stories back with me. And I so wish that they would keep in touch. Mostly they don't, they don't keep in touch. And I so wish they would because the reason that I'm asked to speak so often is because I'm occupying a very small, very weird space. There aren't that many people like me. And I think it's really important for us to be able to find each other and connect. Right. Well, and I'm sure the pandemic hasn't made that easy because no, it hasn't. What, whatever connections you're making are in little squares and, yeah. and from far away. And, uh, you know, whether it's communicating with your fellow cyborgs or people who are encountering you for some other reason, but are finding that there's a touchstone in your story that speaks to them. Yeah. We're all still in the little boxes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It, it has been kind of challenging to find cyborg community uh, not just because there aren't a whole lot of us, but like I made, I made a bunch of acquaintances at um, an event called body hacking con in Austin in Texas. And yeah, the, I mean, the pandemic really interrupted a lot of things. Um, body hacking con said farewell after its 2019 expo because mm-hmm. it, it couldn't take the hit, the economic right. hit, and it couldn't afford to, to um, start up a new event after it was over. So I do really think that it was a really worthwhile use of my time though, to, to volunteer and attend. Like that was a really good con. And if there's anyone out there listening to this, who's been to that con, please get me on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of that, let's, I, I, I want to thank you so much, Lawrence, for coming on parallel and telling us about yourself and about cyborgism. And I would love to have you tell people uh, where they can get in touch with you on the internet. Yeah, sure. I'm on Twitter at turtle dynasty. Well, that's easy enough. And links from there, if they want to see what you're up to, your your art or your story, that's out there as well if people want it. Yeah. Lawrence, thank you so much. It was really great to talk to you. Thanks. It was really good being here.